welcome to the Author Wheel Podcast, where we believe there's no single right way to produce, publish, or promote your work. Only what's right for you. In every episode, we'll talk about common writing roadblocks and how to overcome them so you can keep your stories rolling. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Author Wheel. I am Greta Boris, USA Today bestselling mystery thriller author. And I'm Megan Haskell, award-winning fantasy adventure author. But together, we are the Author Wheel. Today, we are incredibly excited to have John Gaspard join us. Uh, This was a really great interview, and we talked about his fiction, but also his nonfiction books for writers, Popcorn Principles, and More Popcorn Principles, the sequel which compare the screenwriting process to novel writing. Um, He gave us some really great tips. I was really excited to talk to him because he breaks everything down into the steps of the writing or or movie creation process. So that's pre-production, production, editing, and distribution, which is kind of similar to how we've broken down our own thought processes and and how we structured the foundations book. Um, So that was kind of exciting to talk about that and get some great tips um, and advice on each stage of that system. But before we get into the interview, Greta, tell me what's been going on. Well, last weekend, we went to the Southern California Writers Conference, which was we have been talking about. And it was very fun to see a lot of old friends and make some new ones. The cool, uh, thing, the cool thing about that conference, which I'm just interrupting here for a second, because you go right ahead. The cool thing about that is that it's our local writers conference and it's actually where we met. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it was very nostalgic. Exactly. So it was very cool. We really enjoyed ourselves. We taught getting to the heart of your author brand, which as you know, because we say it every episode is on our stuff page in email form, but we did the live version and I think it went really well. We had a lot of people seem to have some aha moments about themselves. Yeah. and Yeah, I, I think so. And the, the other cool thing about doing the workshop instead of the online class, um, which maybe we're going to have to figure out how to do this um, online in the future, but was that everybody got to share their tagline if they wanted to. And we got to say, okay, so based on that tagline, we think you write, you know, mystery thriller and with a time travel element or whatever. So we got to kind of give some feedback on those taglines. Um, and so it was, it was kind of, it was a much more interactive process, which I really enjoyed and I think was very helpful to the students. So stay tuned because we're going to mull on this a little and figure out how we can do that in real and life. Actually, if you were a listener who has taken the online version of that course and come up with a tagline and you want to email us, well, if we get enough interest, maybe we could do a little Zoom webinar for our listeners and get into it on Zoom together. So, yeah. so any excuse to get you guys talking to us, that would be a lot of fun. Um, The other thing that was cool at the conference is that we actually saw the print books of foundations for the first time. We had them on the book table and they sold pretty darn well. And they're really pretty books. So you backers, you Kickstarter backers who are waiting for your print copies, we will get them to you soon. They're really nice. Um, 
So then other than that, I am just working away on book six in the Mortician Murders. It's called Splitting Hairs. And I am in the messy middle and I'm second guessing absolutely everything I thought I was going to write. So yeah, it's going as per expected. That's what usually happens. How about you, Megan? Splitting hairs or split split ends, splitting ends. (laughs) Well, it's too late. Cover's done. It is splitting hairs. But (laughs) split ends should probably be the last book in the series when I get there. Oh, maybe, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Anyway. All right. My list is actually pretty short. I mean, the big news was the conference as well. Um, but otherwise, uh, I am still planning, uh, Aether book three and narrowing it down, which is good. But the big news is I have started a YouTube channel for myself. Yeah. So, uh, I was actually challenged to read a chapter a week online, you know, on video. Um, and post it up to YouTube. So I am doing that for Aether Bound. And the first, as by the time this goes live, the first three chapters will be up. So you can go to Megan Haskell. I think it's just youtube.com slash Megan Haskell. But if you search Megan Haskell's book club, that's that's there. Um, and then I also, because I'm in the planning stages of Aether 3, I created a, what I'm calling a research, which I use the term research kind of loosely. It's inspirational more than, more than factual really, but playlist. So all the videos that I'm watching on YouTube to get ready to write Aether 3, um, I am, I am posting onto this playlist. So if you're curious, if you want to guess where my brain is going, you can let me know. Cause I don't know uh, <laughs> that you can watch or see some of those videos that I'm using for inspiration. Very cool. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of fun. But all that being said, I think we should get started. So let's get on with the show. We are thrilled to have John Gaspard on the show today. John is the author of the Eli Marks Mystery Series and the Como Lake Players Mystery Series. He also has four other standalone novels, including two Greyhound-inspired pastiches, The Greyhound of the Baskervilles and A Christmas Carl. John, Christmas Carl, I like that. John has directed six low-budget features and has written multiple books on the subject of low-budget filmmaking. In addition, he wrote two books for novelists, The Popcorn Principles and More Popcorn Principles, the sequel. His most recent fiction book is a prequel to his Eli Marks series, The Curious Mysteries of Eli Marks. The middle grade book introduces us to 13-year-old Eli and explores how he came to the world of magic and magicians. When not writing, John hosts two podcasts, Behind the Page, The Eli Marks Podcast, and The Occasional Film Podcast. So welcome, John. We are absolutely thrilled to have you here today. But before we get into the deep dive on the popcorn principles, um, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got into writing? Sure. Happy to do it and happy to be here. Um, I am going to preface all this by just saying I love the name of your podcast. Oh, thank uh, you. Because when I started as an uh, uh, independent producer of books, I named my company Albert's Bridge Books, and that's based on a play by Tom Stoppard about a guy who has to paint Albert's Bridge. Uh, and when he gets to the end of the bridge, he turns around and goes back and starts painting it again. So it's sort of like, 
the author wheel in that mm-hmm. you go all the way through and you get back and you have to do it. And I certainly know what that wheel feels like. I've been writing stuff since I was a teenager. I made a bunch of uh, movies as a teen and in college. I uh, made one of the first Super 8 sound feature-length films uh, ever in the world when I was 17. I did a couple features while in college where I studied filmmaking. Um, I got a job in corporate America doing meetings and events and producing and directing and writing videos. So I was doing communication stuff all the time and interacting with uh, talent that we'd hire for meetings and events and working with crews and directing and doing all that. At the same time, I also made uh, a handful of uh, low-budget features in my spare time. Uh, About 12, 13 years ago, I had an idea for a series, uh, a novel series, a cozy mystery series about a magician named Eli Marks and the the, uh, crimes he stumbles into. I was very lucky uh, to get an agent. uh, uh, I'm sorry. I was very lucky to get a, a... the agent was hard to get, and then she uh, decided to have a family and stopped being an agent, which was fine because she wasn't getting anywhere with me. But I did get a publisher on my first try on my own, which I thought was kind of fun. And they published the first four Eli Marks books. And then we sort of had a parting of the ways because they wanted to go one way and I wanted to go the other. I bought back those four books. Uh, we're now up to book number nine in Eli Marks. There's three books in the Como Lake Players series, which uh, Eli Marks takes place in Minneapolis. The Como Lake Players takes place in St. Paul at a community theater. And um, I just, as you mentioned, have started a new series, which is a prequel to the Eli Marks series, where we find Eli at age 13 when he is first learning magic. So that uh, is the short form of me in writing. So I have a question about your prequel, your new series. Is that also like a young uh, detector kind of a thing? Is he solving mysteries? He is in in sort of the Encyclopedia Brown way, um, mm-hmm. because it wasn't really appropriate for him to have to deal with, uh, you know, murders and, and high crimes at age 13. So the book is set up where there's 10 chapters. And during the course of those 10 chapters, we meet Eli. He meets uh, his new living situation because his parents have died. And he's living with his aunt and his uncle. His uncle is a world-class magician. And Eli starts learning tricks. And then in each chapter, he also is confronted with a puzzle or a mystery of some kind. And just like Encyclopedia Brown, uh, we stop at, at the point where he's about to re- reveal what his answer is. And the reader then has a chance to figure out if they know what it is. And then they turn the page and the story continues and we find out who did it. Uh, During those 10 short little mysteries, Eli, each one of them is learning a new magic trick from his uncle. So the second half of the book uh, are instructions on how to perform, how to learn and perform those 10 tricks. So first half of the book is 10 mysteries. Second half is here's how you become a magician. Oh, I love my son would have been so into that when he was of that age. He would have loved that. So when you say magic and magicians, you mean like magic and magicians in real life, not magic and magicians who can wield Harry Potter-esque powers. Exactly. <laughs> I'm a yes. fantasy writer, so my brain went the other direction. No, it's it's very <laughs> down to earth and it's making rabbits appear out of hats and card tricks and that sort of thing. And each one nice. of the books in the in the grown-up series is named after a different type of magic trick. The first one's called the ambitious card which is a very famous trick within the magic world. And each other subsequent title uh, has the name of a magic trick. And then that trick is somehow incorporated into the murder mystery. 
Oh, cool. I love, I, I've read the, uh, the first, the magic, uh, ambitious card. I love the book. It was great. Oh, it, and you. it's such, it's such a interesting setting for, uh, for mysteries because most, uh, I write mystery thrillers, so I'm on your page. Um, most of my readers, they love the puzzles. So mm-hmm. it really, really incorporates the whole puzzle idea um, and magic world and all of that. I mean, it's just a really clever setting for you know, it, it took mysteries. a while to come up with it. Um, and I realized I needed somebody who had a reason to be in a lot of different places um, because you don't want the crimes happening in the same location all the time. And a performer is uh, always in a new environment facing new people. And so you always have uh, new places to go and new suspects. So it seemed pretty flexible. Uh, I also tried uh, to the best of my ability to make every one of the mysteries completely fair, whether it wasn't something that's uh, introduced uh, at the very last minute that uh, there's no way the reader could have figured it out. Normally, if you read one of these Eli Marks books, uh, you'll be you'll be fine with the solution. It was all fair and there weren't any sneaky things done. Yeah, which is which is a challenge. I mean, a lot of the time I have to go back and put the clues and stuff in to my stories because I'll change who done it like three quarters of the way through. I'm like, oh no, not this person, this person. And then you have to go back and fix everything. But that to be fair to your readers, that's that's an important important thing to do because yeah. they get angry at you if you don't. They do too. And I remember reading a quote from one of the two guys who was Ellery Queen who wrote those. And um, he said that uh, in, in their view, uh, people uh, would have to be a genius to figure out most of their mysteries, that it was really just more kind of fun for people. Um, and, and I just don't agree with that. I think people want to have actual clues and actually want to solve it and, and don't want something delivered, uh, you know, the 11th hour where you go, well, that's not fair. We didn't know that. How could anybody mm-hmm. know that? Which is sort of the way a lot of TV mysteries run, particularly procedural ones where you don't have all the information and then they get a piece of information at, toward the end and it solves the puzzle. And it's you're not really solving a mystery, then you're just kind of going along for the characters, which is fun too. Yeah. But if you're saying you're a mystery, I think you should be a mystery. Yeah, thrillers. Yeah. A lot of thrillers and suspense novels, they do that going back and forth in time. So they have before and a scene mm-hmm. and then, and there's no way that you could, but but they're thrillers, so it's okay. Yeah, but it's okay. there's no way you could know because you're not, you're being fed the information that happened before, unless you went and read all those chapters <laughs> first, you know, but anyway. We digress. <laughs> Digressions are the best part. <laughs> yeah. So um, another question that we generally ask people is tell us about what was, what's one of your greatest writing roadblocks and how you have overcome it. Uh, well, we were just sort of touching on it. Uh, I'm not a puzzle person and coming up with the mystery part uh, is the hardest part for me, and and um, it, it it takes the longest to find all those pieces and put them together and make sure everything is, you know, like you said, going back and putting in all the real clues and the fake clues and doing all of that. Um, and it didn't really freeze me up, but it would. It just was a, a stumbling block. Like, okay, how? What is this next book going to be? What is the mystery going to be? How am I going to figure that out? And so what I did was. Um, 
don't know who was who was it who said, you know, whatever it is you fear the most, that's what you need to do. So the eighth book in the series, uh, I it has 12 short stories, two of which were existing before, but I, I made it a goal to sit down and write 10 short story mysteries uh, and make myself do that because I figured the only way to get better at it and be more relaxed about it. And then when I got this sequel idea, prequel idea with young Eli Marks, I did the same thing. I have to sit down and figure out 10 fair and reasonable mysteries that uh, as the young reader goes through it, uh, all the pieces are there. In some cases, I tried to give them several, uh, a mystery could be solved several different ways. Um, so that if if they didn't get all four of the clues, they got one of them, they had enough to go, oh yeah, I got that one, because I got one out of the four reasons why it happened. But that's always been the hardest part, and, and so I've just been uh, banging my head on the wall trying to get better at that. I think that's so interesting, then, that that was the genre that you chose. I mean, if, <laughs> you know, like, if that's the hardest, like, mystery, if the mystery is the hardest part, what drew you to that genre to write that? I can tell you exactly. I blamed Lawrence Block. Um, I got into Lawrence Block via his Matthew Scudder books, which are thrillers and more hard-boiled. And from there, went into his burglar books, which are light and funny and occasionally a little bit dark, um, but nowhere near as dark as Matthew Scudder. And they always have a sort of twisty mystery in them that he sort of solves at the end. I had a chance to interview him once, and he said, nah, I don't really know him tell him about toward the end how I'm going to solve it he 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 uh, jumps through a lot of hoops at the end and that was sort of what I was emulating was that very light very breezy guy who who probably shouldn't be in the situation who's dealing with his own neuroses trying to solve this crime often being accused of the crime and trying to get out of it that was what was interesting to me um, and then I just had to work at that other part which was make the mystery uh, solvable but that's, you know, once you get that part, once you get that piece of what's the mystery and how is he going to solve it, the rest is actually pretty easy and kind of fun. You know, it, that's a really, really, too, there's so many things that you just said that um, I want to unpack. And the first one is that when something is difficult, I love the idea of tackling it in short stories and just doing it over and over and over and over until it gets easier you know because not easy the, mind the, you just easier yeah, <laughs> well, really easy. it's never easy it's never easy but uh, uh, that's kind of how I like I started with writing magazine articles and then when I wanted to start writing fiction I just kind of went to short stories first because I thought well I should practice and it's a shorter time frame those short stories are really terrible I mean nobody'll ever read them I, but it's good practice it is, but if, if someone comes to me and says, I want to become a writer, I would say work on a novel before you try to do a short story because short stories are completely unforgiving. Uh, whereas a novel, you have a lot of wiggle room. It's a very, very expandable, collapsible form. A short story has to work in the space that you have. And it's, um, <laughs> so on top of doing the mystery version of that, coming up with a short story version stuff is also hard. Uh, and and I, I am in awe of people who can just turn out great short story after great short story. It's so it, funny. it is it, an art form. It, it absolutely is. And, and not every author brain works that way. But I think it's interesting that you say that because on the one hand, like, you know, the thing you most fear, do I love that, that, that quote, um, 
do the thing. I can't remember the exact quote, but yeah. Um, but, uh, but, but also like, I've heard that avo- advice. So one of the first, sorry, I am all over the place, but it's okay. Um, so one of the first writing classes I took, the professor was actually a, uh, more of a short story writer than a novelist. He was trying to write a novel, but he'd been doing short stories. And his advice was exactly the opposite was to start with short stories because it perfects your craft because you're forced because of those constraints, you're forced to write concisely, to write mm-hmm. tightly, to make sure that your characterization and your dialogue and everything, everything that needs to be on the page is on the page and nothing more. And so that was really his advice to start out with. So like get really good at that and then write a novel because then it's just a bunch of short stories that are, you know, scene by scene basically that are stitched together. Um, but I agree with you. I think the novel is so much more you have a lot of space, you have a lot of room to play. Same thing with screenwriting, it's very concise, but with a novel, you get all the imagery, you get all the dialogue, you get all the the movement and the, you know, through the written word that you don't get in a screenplay. So I I, I don't know, like, I, I think you can approach it from so many different ways with so many different um, strategies just to improve your craft. There's no, there's no, there's no one way for everybody. (laughs) Yeah, Everybody's got to find their own path. That's for sure. That is really for sure. Yep. Also, I have read, and I can't remember who, maybe John Truby. I don't know. It's always Stephen King or um, who else? It's Hemingway, Stephen King, or John Truby who said everything. So it's probably one of those guys. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, but it was that every novelist should try to write one mystery because they're so challenging. You know, they would, they really are so challenging. And I was just having a conversation with somebody the other day about how, um, I always, (laughs) I always, and then I never, um, Mm -hmm. decide that I figure out the crime that happened that my character has got to solve before the book opens so that I know, so that I can reveal the clues and so on. And, inevitably a third of the way through the book, I go, that is the stupidest plot. Why did I think that was a good crime? Everybody's going to figure that and then I have to completely rework it. And I, I just did with the book I'm working on. So I do think mysteries have their own particular challenge. And most novels, whether they be romance or fantasy or whatever, have some kind of a mysterious element in them, you know? Well, I think they have to, because even if you're writing fantasy, it's a story of growth, which is a mystery. You don't know mm-hmm. until you go through it. Yeah, exactly. So the popcorn principles, did that in part come, do you think, from having to deal with your own difficulties about novel writing? That um, No, actually, it, it um, I've, I've been asked to be on a number of you know, panels at conferences and be on a number of podcasts. And, you know, they look at the bio and they go, oh, you made movies and you're a novelist. Let's talk about what's similar between those two fields. And they're far more similar now than they used to be um, because you can make a movie now on your phone and you can distribute it yourself by just hitting a button and it's out in the world. Same is true now with books. You can write your own book and distribute it. They're very, very similar. And so I would, you know, say, well, you know, it's similar this way. And this this is something that I learned in filmmaking that I use in writing. Here's another thing that I learned 
And I began to realize that I had quite a few notions of things that screenwriters and filmmakers use all the time to make their stories work that I was using and that I could just pass on to people. Um, it's some of the stuff you may have already thought of or are using. Some stuff might be new to you. Um, just about every one of them you have to look at and go, okay, I see what they did. Now, what's my version of that? Because they're not going to necessarily be a straight cross line. Um, and I, uh, like I said, I kept being asked to talk on it. I said, well, I have all these notes. Uh, let's do a book. So I didn't want to do a massive book. This is the, the first book just has 25 uh, ideas in it that uh, with some great examples that you can page through anywhere and go, oh, oh, yeah, that's I should try to do. Oh, I see. That's what they did in Tootsie. That's a great idea. And in my story, I could do this. So you're not lifting plot elements or characters, you're lifting techniques to make the story sharper, to make the dialogue sharper, to tighten up your exposition, to tighten up the book as a whole. All the sorts of things that filmmakers and screenwriters do on movies, those things you can transfer over. Now, I had, because I've written a couple books on filmmaking, I've been able to interview probably 100 filmmakers over the years, um, 60 who are high-level professionals like Roger Corman and Jonathan Demme and people like that. Um, and a lot of what they told me uh, was exactly what I was doing as a novel writer. So that was sort of the basis for the popcorn principles. Here's the stuff that I do and that I've learned from other screenwriters and filmmakers. I'm just going to put them in a particular order and, and they, I think, will be useful to people. It, you, you can't write your book from this. But it, I think, is a pretty good guide to go through when you're done with the book and go, oh, I forgot to do that. Oh, I should do that. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, I'm reading it right now, and I, I'm loving it. Um, and I do think it's so important because the way, especially since we've had streaming platforms, you know, the way that people absorb story now is a lot different than the way they absorb story even 15 years ago. Yeah. You know, and they want to binge. They want these characters that go from episode, episodic, more episodic and those kind of things. And so that, like you said, the stories have to be sharper. They have to be more, you can't wander around so much, you know, that's a, some really, really good um, ideas and thoughts in there. Yeah, I, I think it's easier to see these sorts of things in action in a different medium. Because yeah. if, if you're reading, you know, like a Stephen King book, he's very good at what he does. You wouldn't necessarily see how he did it. But if you're, you know, watching uh, a, a series um, like Ted Lasso and you go, oh, I get, okay, that's how you, yeah, I could do that same sort of thing in my book. It's just easier to spot the tricks. It's sort of compressed, too, because, I mean, screenplay writers, they may have to do this this whole thing in a half an hour or 45 minutes or whatever versus yep. by the time you've read eight or 10 hours of a book, it's you've been lost in that world and it's yep. hard to stand back and look. Um, I also love the way that you have um, organized your book. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Tell our listeners. Sure. Well, it, it just sort of naturally fell into place too because there's such similarity between uh, filmmaking and novel writing, uh, we have the similar buckets that we do things in. We have pre-production. Uh, we have production. So pre-production is getting ready to do it. Production is that when you're actually in the writing. Uh, you have post-production, which is the editing and the final fixing. And then distribution, how you get it out there and how you react 
to it being out there. So for the first book, The Popcorn Principles, I put them into, uh, I, I took the ideas and organized them under those headings because it was kind of fun and just made it easier to, to do that. For the sequel, um, the sequel is a little more, uh, hey, flip it open in any page. I think you'll find something you like. I didn't do that same organization because I don't like sequels that are just copies of the very first one. That well, is great. It, it is. It, it, what, what we noted about that, too, is that that's kind of why we did our little quick guides. And we did them, you know, we we broke them down into the different stages of writing and, and very topical, little short, concise advice. Um, and then when we decided to make a bigger book out of it, that was exactly like when mm-hmm. we... We're trying, we actually started out with a different order and then we went back and we we're like, no, 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 we've got to put this in the right order. And this is the order that makes sense because of, you know, the pre-production and the planning and then the the actual productivity writing and building ultimately a, a strategy um, around your writing. So I think that I think that makes sense for people, but I don't think novelists necessarily break things down that way naturally or, you know, in their own heads. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Like, why do you think novelists don't like just, they just feel like they can just sit down and just write, (laughs) just go. (laughs) And they certainly can. They certainly can, but um, they're going to go through those steps whether they want to or not, uh, or whether if they get really detailed on them, but you're going to come up with an idea. Okay. That's pre-production. You're going to write the idea. That's production. You're going to edit the idea. That's post-production. And then you're going to distribute it. Um, So it's, it's the same format happens. You just might not be thinking about it uh, in that way, but everybody has beginning, middle, end of their writing process. I just broke it. It was sort of a fun way to divide it up. Um, And it, it, I thought for the reader picking it up, depending what point they're at in their own production of their book, they could jump to, you know, I'll, I'm having I'm having trouble uh, with the editing. I'm going to just look at the post-production chapters and see what they have to say about book editing as it relates to film editing. So one of the quotes, I, I didn't get very far the other morning when I was reading because I got to one quote and I had to write it down. And it was a quote from Tom Noonan. And he says, you said, he said to try is to struggle in a powerless situation. Um, and then it goes on, but it, he talks about if you have an idea, either do it or don't. You know, if you have a story to tell, then please do mm-hmm. it. And I love that because I do think there is that reticence to get started, you know, that a lot of people have. So you can, you can, you can neglect the pre-production piece or you can live there and never leave it. And I love that piece of advice. Just get going. Sometimes you don't know what you know, what you need to know until you start going. Yeah, that's actually the very first chapter is called Stop Getting Ready and Just Do It. Because this is also true in the screenwriting world. Um, You know, as novelists, we always have a lot of different things we could be learning before we start writing. There's podcasts we can listen to and there's books we can read and and all kinds of things we think we should do to get ready to write. Same is true in the screenwriting world where there's just a million things you can do that keep you from writing. But you think, well, I've got to first learn this and first learn that. And at a certain point, you're probably better off stop getting ready and just start doing it. Uh, because otherwise you could do that. You could get ready forever and uh, you're not going to have a finished book then. 
Yeah, it's kind of like when when uh, new writers often, and I did this, new writers often get stuck on the first chapter and they just keep rewriting it, rewriting it. And then the language is absolutely gorgeous. But then when they get to the end of the book and it comes to the editing phase, they discover, oh, this really doesn't fit in the story at all anymore. And they have to, <laughs> you know, yeah. cut, cut the whole first chapter, you know. Well, that's what the editing process is all about. Um, and there's, there's in the filmmaking world, uh, one thing that a lot of filmmakers do is when they're working with an editor is the editor is really not part of production. They're not on the set. Um, they're not part of that day-to-day because what they want is for the editor to sit down and to look at the footage and see what they have in front of them and not have any sort of preconceptions about that was a really hard shot to get. That was a really long day. This took forever to get this shot. The editor doesn't care about that. The editor cares about, I have to tell the story with the footage I have. How am I going to do that best? And that's the sort of mindset you need to get into when you're in that editing stage of your book. You have to go, okay, there's all this stuff here. And I know that first chapter was really hard to write, but you know what? The story doesn't really start until the second chapter. And I think I need to cut that out so the story gets moving right away. And maybe that first chapter can use that as a reader magnet at some point and release it in some other form. You know, we hate to throw something away, but uh, when you're in that editing phase, you have to be ruthless and go, nope, that doesn't help. That doesn't help. It's got to go. What's what's the, I don't know who said this, kill, the kill your darlings. Stephen uh, King, I'm sure. It's in the book. I don't, it, it goes way back goes way, way back. It's much further back than that. There's a version of it. But it, you know, there's there's two rules I live by. That's one of them. Kill your darlings. And the other was, and I think it was William Faulkner who said it. He said, don't write the parts that readers don't read. Mm. Yeah. And um, you know, we all know, you're reading a book and there's a big chunk of paragraph ahead of you and you can tell it's this, it's, you know, it's, it's Moby Dick and it's describing the whale again. You just skim over that. And uh, his point was, don't even bother writing that part. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, uh, the people, readers have changed today from what they used to be, and they're not going to put up with that much description anymore. Generally, uh, they want the story to move, and if you're not willing to make the cuts to make it move, then they might finish your book, but they're not going to be thrilled by it, and they're probably not going to buy the next one in the series. Which also, I think, goes on to to point out that you do need another set of eyes on your work, like whether you know you need to hire a good editor if you can afford one or get, mm-hmm. you know, good, strong beta readers if you can't or both. Both ha- often help. Um, but we are often too close to our work and we write these beautiful passages that, you know, we just had fun with the language for a little while. But if a reader sees that, you're right, like they're going to they're going to skim it maybe because it's not integral to the story anymore um right. and readers right. do want that action forward faster pace in modern storytelling as compared to a lot of classic literature um so having yeah, that i think, I think it's eyes, important right? to be careful who you hand it to and when yes um a, a number of filmmakers have told me that when they finish writing a script they stick it in a drawer for as long as possible as long as reasonable and then pick it up again and they become uh, in many ways, that first new set of eyes, and they'll go through it that way. Uh, in, in the Popcorn Principles, there's a couple of chapters on how to get notes uh, and how to give notes uh, because it's a it's a very delicate process. 
mm-hmm. uh, and and handled incorrectly, um, uh, you could you can squash a writer who had great potential because the wrong person gave them the notes at the wrong time. So I think it's important to have beta readers like that. I think you you have to, you can't have just any beta readers. You have to have people whose taste you trust. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. You know, I, I do try to do that as well. Like when I finish a novel, I, I because I'm always running late. I don't usually have a long time, but I try to give myself at least a week mm-hmm. to let something sit and then uh, go back and I read it and I read it often. Like I'll download it in Kindle format or something where I cannot edit it. Yeah. And I try to just read it like a reader and and make notes. And I think that it is really good for writers to do that first before they hand it to an editor or beta readers or anybody, because you know what you were trying to say. Mm-hmm. So, and that is your Achilles heel, but it's also your strength, right? Yeah. Because if you do it too soon, you can read the section or read a book and think, well, sure, this is what it says because your brain is filling in the gaps. But if you give it that space, you can you can go back to the piece and you can say, oh, I didn't really say what I meant to say here, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I think it's I a think good piece of advice. Your memories must just be better than mine because usually by the time I get to the end of the book, I forget what I wrote in the beginning and then I go back and I read it and I go, <laughs> oh, I wrote this? This is great. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's I forgot good. about this. <laughs> so, so give us a couple of your favorite, we've talked about, pre-production and we've talked about post-production, but we haven't really talked about production. Give us a couple of your favorite popcorn principles from that to sure. whet people's appetites. Um, well, we sort of touched on this a little bit. Uh, it's a chapter I call Don't Spill All Your Popcorn in the Lobby. Um, and it is about having secrets and when you reveal secrets. When do you reveal things in the story? Because sometimes there's a tendency to want to tell everything at once. And um, it's more interesting, I think, for a reader if you discover things along the way. One of the examples that I use in the book is just a favorite example of mine from the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, where they're being chased by the super posse. And they're, it's a long sequence in the, in the movie. And they are on top of a cliff and the posse is coming up behind them. And their only choice is to jump into the river far, far, far below. And uh, the Sundance Kid is resisting it, and Butch is saying we, it's our only choice. And Sundance Kid is saying we've, we've got to find another way of doing it. And Butch is saying, come on, why not? And Sundance Kid says, because I can't swim. And now that's a fact you could have tossed in earlier if you wanted, but it's a great little character thing at that moment. And uh, it's surprising. And then William Goldman, the screenwriter, has... Uh, Butch say right after that, well, what are you, what are you crazy? The fall will probably kill you. So it's a way of revealing something about a character and then having something funny happen after it. Uh, and, and that's, you know, we, we want to tell our readers everything about our characters uh, right away. Here's everything you need to know about this person. And it really is better to reveal it uh, in dribs and drabs along the way so that there is something you're learning about them as opposed to just, you know, uh, there, there's one exception to that that I've seen that I just loved. There's a, a British series called Happy Valley, which is about a policewoman in, uh, I think, somewhere in northern England, played by Sarah Lancashire. And the very first scene in the very first episode, 
as a policewoman, she is confronted with someone who's really having a bad day. They're standing on a bench in a park. They've doused themselves with gasoline and they're going to light themselves on fire. And she says to the guy something along the lines of, look, I'm having a bad day. I'm divorced. My daughter won't, uh, my son won't talk to me. My daughter is dead. My sister's a heroin addict and I don't need this. Uh, And she delivered, of course, much better than I did. So in that case, you've just told us a lot of key stuff about that character, which is very helpful as we move forward, but you did it in a fun, engaging way. So I, you know, I give that a pass, but I think it is more fun if you discover things about people along the way. The, The most recent great example of that is there's a scene in Ted Lasso where uh, very early in the series where he's in the pub and the former owner of the team that he's working on is there with Ted's boss, who uh, is that guy's ex-wife. And the former owner is really a jerk. And uh, he challenges Ted to a game of darts. Um, I would recommend you go on YouTube and look up Ted Lasso darts because it is a scene in which we learn something about Ted. We learned two things about Ted. We didn't know. And it's a great reveal of information. And it came in like episode three. Uh, They didn't tell us that right away about Ted and his father. Um, So find an artful way to reveal things rather than just a list of things. I I just think that's, it's more fun if you don't spill all your popcorn right away. I love that. I love Um, that. That scene, sorry. Ted Lasso is my personal favorite show of all time. I have actually watched the entire series like three times now. Um, Do you remember the dart scene? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that is such a beautifully written, beautifully acted, beautifully done episode. Just the whole episode was fantastic. But that particular scene in particular um, was fantastic. But if that had been in episode one right at the beginning, it would not have had that impact. It would not because have. Because we waited, we waited to let us know that about Ted. Yep. Yep. Well, and there, were a, there was a lot of that through the entire series where yep. they just reveal, you don't mm-hmm. get the full characterization until later on. Yep. It's great. Yep. So the way I've heard it said by somebody smarter than me was, uh, don't tell them until they care, you know, mm-hmm. because... Yep. In the beginning, when people don't know your characters and they're not emotionally attached to them and they don't care, they don't care. They don't care if she didn't get along with her mother or was an orphan or lived in a foster home. They just they don't care about her. So yeah. don't tell them until they do care. And then it's meaningful. Mm-hmm. And it's something they remember. And I do love that scene in Ted Lasso as well. Uh, along the lines of this, before you give us another popcorn, um, I have a question for you because you have a long running series with the same character. Mm-hmm. And this is something I'm starting to struggle with. Um, how do you fill readers in? Like, cause if, if each mystery could potentially be a standalone, you need, but yet you need to fill them in on the, a new reader needs to understand mm-hmm. some things from back episodes, but you don't want to bore the tar out of your readers who've, your faithful dogs who've read every book since book one. And it's that same thing. It's like revealing, but what do you reveal? How much, when, blah. So what's your, how do you tackle that? Well, I'm, I'm very lucky uh, in that there's not a lot uh, that you need to know going in. Um, although the relationship, so they evolve from book to book. It's a, it's a pretty simple setup. You know, uh, it's all told from Eli's point of view. It's first person. So, uh, we learn 
right away that he's a magician generally. <clears throat> and the other things you need to know is he's either, depending on where you are in the series, got a girlfriend or his wife, his uncle runs the magic store. And that's kind of about it. It's a pretty simple setup. Um, and I part of that was in reading Lawrence Block and reading his Matthew Scudder series, of which there are many, many books. And there are, are some key things you need to know about Matthew Scudder that um, Block had to introduce in each book in a different way to get, get you that background information. Um, and he found a way to do it every time where it wasn't annoying to those of us who already knew what it was. Um, but in my case, it's it's so much simpler because I just have a really simple world. Uh, things yeah. shift a little bit around, but there's not a lot of complicated connections or backstory. So that's a good hot tip for our listeners. If you're planning simple. to write, keep it simple, stupid. Yeah, yeah the, kiss, the kiss principle. Kiss principle. Um, yeah, that, that that is a good that is a good way to do it. So, give us another popcorn principle for production. All right. Um, well, this one, uh, this is actually from the second book, uh, and it works just about anywhere in your process. It's just something to think about, and it has to do with with. Uh, in my case, because I write a series, uh, is cliffhangers. What do you want to end the book on and, and how do you want to set it up so they'll read the next book? And how much of a cliffhanger do you want to put in there? And I think there are good cliffhangers and there are bad cliffhangers. Um, you know, the term comes from film, uh, from the early silent films, where they would have what's called a serial. Um, and every week you'd see a different episode of the serial when you went to the movie theater. And they would literally sometimes have the hero hanging off a cliff at the end of an episode. And then you'd come back the next Saturday and see the next episode. And he'd get up off the cliff um, if they were doing it fairly. Sometimes they would cheat and he'd never actually fell off the cliff. So that's a bad cliffhanger. A good one is if it's accurate. So in looking at movies, when we think about our own books, uh, Back to the Future has uh, a great cliffhanger. Uh, the story is emotionally solved at the end. Everything Marty set out to do, he has done. Uh, all the changes that needed to happen have happened. As a viewer, you are the the emotional purse has been closed. Everything's sealed and you're fine. You're happy. And then Doc Brown shows up and says, uh, Marty, we've got to go back to the future. There's a problem with your kids. And they hop in the door and they're off and running. Fantastic. Everybody loves it. You you don't feel cheated because you got the whole thing. Jump ahead a couple of years, back to the future. Two, Marty's left on a dusty road outside of town. His car is broken down. Uh, he is uh, not in a good place. Uh, a guy shows up with a telegram that says, uh, uh, the telegram's coming from 100 years ago. Doc Brown is alive, but he's now 100 years in the past. You've got to come save him. And as Marty runs off, it says the end coming next back to the future three. And when I saw it in a movie theater, people booed because mm -hmm. they hadn't tied everything up and they weren't happy about it. Uh, the third movie did fill everything in, but they felt cheated. Uh, very similar to the end of the second Star Wars movie, uh, Empire Strikes Back, where you are completely left hanging and nothing has been resolved. And people were very unhappy with that. Um, uh, so that's a bad cliffhanger. The first Back to the Future, good cliffhanger. Uh, the original, well, original, the 1973 uh, movie, The, the Three Musketeers, uh, has uh, a cliffhanger ending where, although everything has been resolved, we see that there's another adventure coming. 
Uh, audiences were just fine with that. Uh, the actors were not fine with it because they had shot what they thought was one movie and the producer cut it into two and made it into two movies and they didn't get paid for two movies. But that's a, an example of a good cliffhanger. You have emotionally fulfilled everything you set up and then you're allowed to do a little tease for the next thing, but that's okay because it's separate from the emotional journey you're on. Um, and as someone who writes you know, a series, I always want to entice readers come, to come on to the next one. Um, but I've just done that by including sometimes the chapter, first chapter of the next book, because I don't want someone to get to the end of my book and go, wait a second, what, what do you mean we're going to find out in the next book? Uh, that's not cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that, how I felt with the latest Spider-Man. The, yeah. the, the latest Spider-Man, I loved it, but it ended, it just, it was abrupt. And you're like, yep. there, nothing got resolved here. So yep. yeah, it wasn't a movie. It was half of a movie. Um, but I, I find that interesting. I think that's always been my goal as well. I don't know that I've always capitalized on it as well as I could have, but I find epilogues actually help with the, with the thread. So you close out the emotional journey, you close out the facts of that story or that case or, you know, whatever genre you're writing. Um, but then having those, a few little threads that lead to that next adventure which for me in, in my most recent one, that was that was in the epilogue. So like I closed it all out, but I realized it was it was too closed. <laughs> so so I I I I inferred a little bit more um in the epilogue, which I I think works. I don't know. We'll see what readers say <laughs> once I start getting reviews. You know, I think that's a great idea. I did exactly that same thing in the new young Eli Marks book where at the end of the 10 mysteries, there's a little epilogue and uh Eli, who was 13 years old, receives a postcard from a young lady that he was uh, interested in in the book, and she has moved away at the end of the book. And the postcard is from California, where she now lives, and it's got a picture of the Magic Castle. And she said, I'm learning a lot of magic here, and I've got a big surprise for you to be continued. So they're right in the postcard, and that's how the epilogue ends. So the book is good, and it's done, but here's a hint of what's to come. And I think that's kind of the best cliffhangers. Here's a hint of what's to come, Yeah, but you're satisfied with the story. Yeah, I, I, I've been trying to work on that in my new series, because in my first series, um, I was oblivious, and I didn't know, <laughs> you know, and I had a traditional publisher, and they just always put the first chapter of the next book in, and it wasn't, it was a series of standalone books with their own characters and their own stories. I, but this is a, more like the Eli Marks, where I have the same character going throughout, so that's been the, the thing that I tried to do with each book, is just wrap it up, and then have somebody call her on the phone or somebody come in yep. and say something or something that's like, this is what's coming, you know? Yep. And I think that, I think that's a great bit of advice. So, um, so you had, I'm, I'm moving into distribution now. So we have touch on every section mm-hmm. of your book, just a little bit, but this is sort of your story question. So you had a traditional publisher Mm-hmm. for Eli Marks for the first four books. And then um, you made that decision and were lucky enough to be able to buy your rights back. Sometimes people cannot. Um, why did you decide to move from traditional publishing, which is something that, you know, most new writers think that's the end all be all, yeah. to being 
an independently published author to having your own little publishing company? Um, well, the, the deal that I had with the publisher, um, when they, when they picked up the first book, The Ambitious Card, they sent over a contract that said, um, this is for this book. And then we are asking for two more books in this amount of time. And I called up and said, not interested in doing that. I want to do this on my own schedule. Uh, I don't want to be beholden. I spent 30 years writing under a schedule and this is supposed to be fun. So I'm happy to have you publish this first book. Uh, and I, I'm fine with the clause that says you have first right to look at the next book, but I'm not going to promise you a book uh, because I don't want to do that. And they said, fine, but understand that you're not going to be first on the schedule then. When you hand in a book, it goes in wherever it can fit. And generally that's going to be a year from now. So, um, you know, traditional publishing is a long process anyway. And then to add that extra caveat to it. There was just a long time between books uh, and I didn't care for that. And they didn't really get the books. Uh, I think what they thought was, oh, this is a book uh, mystery with a magician hero. Therefore, everyone who's a magician is going to love this book. Hmm. And, and that's just not true. Those magicians who like mysteries like the book, but just because you're into magic, you're not going to be into magic fiction. Um, so I didn't think they were marketing it the way I would have liked to have marketed. So yeah, I was I, I hit them at a particularly good time, uh, and I had an open checkbook, and that helped uh, to get it back. Um, and and that's I kind of prefer that because that's how I made the movies when I made them. I made a movie when I wanted to make it. I made it the way I wanted to do it. Uh, I distributed it the way I wanted to distribute it, and there wasn't uh, any sort of gatekeeper between me and getting it out. And I had enough processes in place in movies and in books to make sure that everything was fixed and fine and good before it went to the public, um, that the publisher really wasn't giving me anything and they were basically just slowing me down. So that's why I, I switched to it. And I prefer it. Uh, if I finish a book and want it to go out tomorrow, it can go out tomorrow. I don't generally do it that way because I think you need to do a little bit of planning when you're releasing a book, but it does just give me the freedom to do whatever I want when I want. And it's a brave new world. We don't have to rely on the publishers anymore because technology has given us so many of the same tools, you know, which is a really great thing. Yeah, it's, it is so analogous to the way I was making movies. Uh, the last movie I made uh, was a feature film and completely self-produced. And when I was done, I hit a, went to a site on, online called Film Hub. I loaded it up there. I hit a button. And uh, they sent it off to uh, Amazon Prime and Tubi and Roku and uh, just about everything in the world except for Netflix. Well, I didn't even know you could do that with film. I, I don't either. know that much about it. That's pretty amazing. And it, why not Netflix? I'm curious uh, because, now. <laughs> because Netflix has their own system for bringing stuff in. Uh, and um, they're, they're weird. Um, they have their own, they're making their own stuff. I mean, the other studios do as well. Amazon makes their own stuff. Roku has started making their own stuff. But Netflix has its own way of getting product into their system. And it, they just don't want to do it this way, which is fine, you know, because if, if you want to see my movies, there are plenty of places to see them for free. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. All right. It is. So any other, any other distribution popcorn principles that, that well, you want to share? You know, you both mentioned uh, 
Tom Noonan at the beginning, one of you mentioned, I forget which one of you said about, um, you know, there's no trying, there's only doing. And Tom Noonan uh, probably best remembered uh, if you're a movie person as the the Toothberry, the killer in the Manhunter, which was the very first Hannibal Lecter movie uh, um, in the I don't know late early '90s, late '80s. Um, and he's a character actor. He's been in tons of movies. He's also a playwright uh, and a film director. And he wrote and directed and starred in a movie called uh, uh, What Happened Was. It's a two-person piece. Uh, it's really interesting. And the the thing that he said to me about distribution was, uh, you really need to read the fine print. And you need if you don't know what the fine print is, you need to get someone who knows what the fine print is. Because in his case... Uh, he was a pretty knowledgeable guy when it came to contracts. The contract he signed for distribution did a thing where every time the movie made money, he lost money. Mm. It was sort of a complicated uh, thing about royalties. Um, and he said it was one line in it, and it's in a lot of contracts, and I didn't see it. Um, and and uh, there is, I think, nowadays a tendency to you know click that little box that says, have you read the above? And do you accept all the terms and conditions? Um, and we got to make sure uh, when we sign something, what we're signing. In my case, when I signed with the small publisher, you know, the the, the contract said I owed them two books. I changed that. It said they had rights to the audiobooks. I said, no, you don't. Um, there were a couple other things I remember changing. Uh, and I know you get really, really excited when the publisher says, I want your book. Uh, or an agent says, I want to represent you. Um, and I think you have to temper that excitement with you. Yeah, but what are you really signing? How long am I, you know, signing away the rights for this? Uh, even something as simple as when you do your audiobooks and you put them up in ACX because you want it to be an Audible and you want it to be on Amazon. Well, you're, if you sign uh, an exclusive distribution with them, I think it's a seven-year contract with them and your audiobooks are are exclusive with them for seven years. Um, and you may not want that. Things change, and you may want to be able to get out of that. Um, and you actually can with a little bit of wrangling, but it isn't easy. So it's it's the idea of I know it, it's very exciting to hit that distribution point, and someone's interested in your work and they want to do something with it. Just make sure you know what rights you're giving them and what rights you're keeping, and why you're letting them have the rights you're letting them have. It's it's a boring part of the process, but it's a very painful part if you haven't done it properly. That is amazingly good advice. You know, when I uh, got, when I was offered a contract for my first series and it was the same thing, I've been pitching, you know, I've been rejected 75 times or something. So when you get this, it's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, pop the champagne, you know, have a party. Mm -hmm. And then- um, And by the way, do do that, pop the champagne and celebrate because you got an offer. That's huge. Right. Before but. <laughs> you, but, but be sober before you sign it. Um, yeah. So, so then, uh, but my husband is, he's in um, commercial real estate and he is a contract guy, you know? So, mm-hmm. and he knows nothing about book publishing and he could care less that I was rejected 75 times. So he, he took the contract and he was like, well, what does this mean? And I said, well, it means this. And he goes, you don't want that that's ridiculous. Out, that's out. And then he just went. And so I was a nervous wreck because here I am going to the publisher and saying, okay, I don't want this, 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 and this, you know, and thinking she's just going to tell me to, you know, go 
pound sand. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, she was like, oh, okay, we'll change that. We'll change this. We'll change that. You you don't know until you ask, you know, you don't know. I, I say, I think that is, I totally echo that advice. That's a very, very good advice. And sometimes I'll even add one more. Uh, I actually tur- turned down one contract because I looked I looked at their covers. I looked at their website. I looked at, I wasn't feeling great. And then I actually found one of their authors on Facebook and messaged her because she had books with them and other people. And she said, well, you can't quote me. I'm going to deny it. If you said, (laughs) if you said I said it, that I wouldn't do it. I would run as I'm like, okay, there you go. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's an excellent, excellent your advice. due diligence. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah. be willing, be willing to walk away. Yeah. There's a huge yeah. power in saying no. And if if they're not, you know, you sure, let's negotiate, let's find a middle ground. But uh at the at the end of the day, if you're not happy with it, you're gonna be stuck with it. And it's it's a lot harder to unsign something later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So on that fabulous last bit of advice we're go- why don't you tell everybody um john where they can find more about you and your books and especially these new popcorn principle books i think that they're just fabulous i can't wait to dig into the one that i have and really read it all so sure tell our um, you, you can find everything uh uh, books and everything at Albert's Bridge Books. That's albertsbridgebooks.com. Uh, all the books there are wide, with the exception of Eli Marks. Eli Marks is uh, exclusive at Amazon because it's still kind of working to do it that way. Uh, when it stops kind of working, then it'll leave Amazon. But for the time being, it's only there. Uh, you can also listen to currently the first three books for free. Uh, the uh, the podcast behind the page, the Eli Marks podcast, where uh, every episode has one chapter of the book and then an interview with a guest who's somehow related to that chapter or an idea about magic in general. We've had people like Teller of Penn and Teller come on and talk to us. Yes, Teller does talk. And Dick Cavett and the amazing Kreskin, people like that. So that podcast behind the page, the Eli Marks podcast, is a fun way to get into the books and you can hear my narrator, who's the world's greatest narrator, bring Eli Marks to life. Well, that is wonderful. Well, thank you so much, John. This has been great. It's been fun. And to our listeners out there, um, don't forget to go visit um, Albert's Bridge Books in the podcast, John's podcast. And then also, if you'd like to visit our stuff page, authorreal.com slash stuff, and you can pick up, if you haven't already, our free course, Getting to the Heart of Your Author Brand, which is really all about understanding who you are, what you write, why you write it, which is going to help you with clarity for all these things we were talking about today. So go check it out at authorreal.com slash stuff. And until next time. Wait, 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 wait. Whoa, she stopped me. (laughs) I was just going to give the punchline. What did I miss, Megan? You forgot to mention the new Facebook community. Oh, 
Whoops. Okay. You tell about it. All right. Well, so, uh, we just started a brand new Facebook community. So it's the author wheel community. Very, very creative. Uh, but yeah. And so every week we are going to be posting a question of the week related to that week's podcast. And we want to make sure that you all know about it. We have mentioned it in the show notes, but we've actually never mentioned it on the show. So today we're mentioning it. Um, So make sure you go check that out. We are going to try to continue to expand the conversation there and discuss, you know, the show and the um, hopefully have some conversations with the guests on the show and some other things as well. So please go check that out. Join us there. And until next time. Can I just say, I'm going to jump in. (laughs) Yes, Uh, please. While you were saying that, I just went onto Facebook and signed up for the author wheel community so that's very easy to do and i will just say to your listeners if you enjoy this podcast go to wherever you're getting it from and give them a positive rating because it is the only way other people are going to find it is if enough people are rating it positively and then the algorithm moves it to other people and i i've found so many great podcasts including this one because my podcast provider uh said hey you like these podcasts how about this one So please go and rate this podcast. You don't have to leave a review. Reviews are nice. That's great. But it's just hitting the rating button. That really, really helps. Okay, I'll send you that twenty dollars uh, after we're done <laughs> no, recording. That's free. You that's know what? Free. And we always forget to say that too. Like and subscribe, right? Like that's the YouTube yeah. thing. <laughs> like, like and subscribe and, and subscribe. hit that bell. Yeah. It really does. It really does make a difference. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. So now, can I say the punchline? I think so. I think we're good. Keep your stories rolling. Are you an aspiring author? Stop by www.authorwheel.com slash stuff to download the top five writing roadblocks aspiring authors must overcome. Thank you for listening to the Author Wheel Podcast, hosted by Greta Boris and Megan Haskell, edited by Jim Wilborn.